Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Um, it is March the 12th, getting towards midday in California. Uh, and the news is slowly improving, it would seem. Uh, we heard from President Joe Biden last night that uh, he's expecting most uh, adult Americans to at least be on the vaccine list by, my, uh, by May 1. I'm waiting for mine. Um, and more and more people are concerned about how the rollout's going in their own states. Some states are doing better than others. As always, the New York Times is summarizing which states are strongest and which aren't. But we're increasingly having debates about whether vaccines are enough. Here's another op-ed in the New York Times to say, suggesting that we need more than vaccines. And of course, as the summer comes up, we're talking more and more about vaccine passports, whether you need a special kind of passport to go to Spain uh, the, or, or, or Israel or Italy or wherever else you're choosing to go. Uh, the Economist uh, ran an op-ed this morning um, questioning whether or not we need vaccine passports. Um, some countries are more aggressive on the vaccine passport than others. Uh, the island of Ibiza in Spain apparently is uh, running its own scheme. And the Israelis are so often uh, are ahead of us. They have something called a green pass. Now, not everyone agrees that a vaccine passport is a, a good idea. Um, my guest today actually is one of America's leading, I guess you would call him... Uh, and uh, Albert, correct me if I'm wrong, a, a, a digital rights activist. Um, he's the head of uh, Stop Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Uh, and he is the author of that piece in Wired, suggesting that vaccine passports are actually a rather bad idea. Uh, Albert, what's wrong with a vaccine passport? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. And when we're talking about vaccine passports, it's a little confusing because we're actually talking about two very different technologies that have the exact same name. So on the one hand, you have the this growing momentum for some sort of digital vaccination record that tracks whether or not you've been vaccinated against COVID-19 when you're crossing international borders. That's something that the World Health Organization has supported. That's something that a number of governments have invested in, uh, many of the ones that you mentioned. And that, from my perspective as you know, a civil rights lawyer, as a technologist, it, it, that's something that seems like it could work well. It depends on the specifics. But where we see an alarming move that we think is really both at odds with uh, civil rights protections, but also public health guidance, is this growing momentum you know, here in the United States and uh, in Israel and in a number of other countries to have a daily check-in passport, something where it's a vaccine passport that you need to use to go to the office, to go to school, to even go to the grocery store. That's that's not hyperbole. That's something that one of the uh, inventors of one of the leading vaccine passport systems ha has said is the goal. And so when you're talking about this becoming a necessity for accessing daily life, uh, it, it really raises alarm bells, both because of the invasiveness of that tracking, 
and how uh, also this is raising the risk that you'll create a new form of digital segregation that builds on the existing inequity in the vaccine rollout. It's interesting, Albert, that you say that. I'm quoting now from your uh, your Wired piece. Um, you uh, you call out Andrew Yang, Yang, who's one of the the darlings, I guess, of progressives. On uh, he's running for New York mayor now. Um, he wants this to be a, a, a daily a, a daily passport. Um, has the left and progressives have they got? the vaccine wrong? And are they less concerned as they should be about this onset of, of what Shoshana Zuboff so famously called surveillance capitalism? One of the things that's so interesting about the privacy debate is it doesn't always map on to left, right, you know, progressive conservative uh, lines. You know, we definitely see uh, progressives who are trying to push what you know often gets called techno solutionism the idea that we're just going to have some app that fixes it that somehow if we just roll out the right technology that we can evade you know having to really come to terms with some of the bigger structural uh, um, barriers to equity in our society but then at the same time, you know, you, you see plenty of conservatives who have a libertarian objection to, to these vaccine passports. I think Andrew Yang really ha has been an outlier um, in the mayor's race here in New York in so vocally calling for vaccine passports. And what I worry is that it's really, at the end of the day, magical thinking. It's this idea that we can just invest in this technology. And, you know, let's take a step back. Even if the technology worked perfectly, which it probably won't, and even if it did everything that you know the proponents claim, we still don't have public health guidance that says it's a good idea for people to you know be treated differently when you're thinking about reopening places like Madison Square Garden just because they had a vaccine. And that's exactly what we did here when in New York when we rolled out the Excelsior Pass, which was the first vaccine passport. Yeah, which was uh, rolled out by. Somebody else who's very much in the news, Andrew Cuomo. Now, uh, if, if we had a little camera on him, uh, that might make some interesting uh, interesting content. Andrew, if you're around, you're more than welcome to come on, on my show and defend yourself. Um, Albert, let's take a step back. Uh, you are a critic of, of, of what, as I said, Shoshana Zuboff, who was on the show a couple of years ago, a wonderful writer and thinker, perhaps the leading thinker in this space called Surveillance Capitalism. You had a piece uh, earlier this year, which was quite controversial in Wired as well, suggesting that the capital attack, the, the January 6th attack, which of course none of us are defending, yeah. doesn't justify expanding surveillance either. And, and, and like you, I was kind of shocked in some ways by some people publicly hunting others down and lots of misidentification and all sorts of other weird stories of people being um, arrested because they got caught on camera in January 6th. Where should this stuff begin and end, in your view, when it comes to facial recognition and our rights to demonstrate? Yeah, so I'm a surveillance abolitionist. I want to abolish the systems of mass surveillance that have been, you know, promulgated at, at the state and local level, which have really remade the way that our cities are monitored and function. And when the insurrection happened, I was so angry. I felt this impulse that I wanted to do whatever 
whatever we could to find the people responsible. And in that moment, I, I really recognized the danger that that anger could take us to a place but, where- but, but, but Albert, and, and, and you, you know what I'm gonna say here, uh, like so many others would, but these people were breaking the law and the only way to track them down is by uh, people identifying them online. What's wrong with that? No one is, is picking on these people. They chose to go to this demonstration. They, they chose to invade Congress. They, they chose to, uh, to, to, to put uh, troops and police people's lives in danger. What's wrong with identifying them? Well, let's go with that first assumption you went with, that it's necessary to use a surveillance technology to find the people. So the technology I was writing about in Wired was facial recognition, geolocation, data aggregation, and other forms of mass surveillance. And yet we haven't seen that driving the majority of arrests. What we've seen is the FBI using wanted posters and a tip line. And so it's this automatic assumption that you need the most uh, aggressive and invasive surveillance to find folks when really the defining feature of the insurrection was the hubris, that these people were in large numbers doing this with impunity. They were live streaming their felonies. They were giving their names to the press. So I don't think that we've seen the case that we need this expansive surveillance state to find the people who were responsible for this specific attack. You've come out also very clearly against um, all forms of facial recognition technology. Uh, another story in the news uh, this week is uh, the, the facial recognition company Clearview AI, which apparently, and this is uh, a Bay Area story, have been illegally aggregating uh, facial recognition. How, how worried are you by companies like Clearview AI? Well, Clearview AI is one of the most disturbing facial recognition vendors in the United States. And all facial recognition is invasive and all of it, it has the potential to be incredibly biased. But what we saw with Clearview AI is they weren't just you know, trying to come up with a facial recognition algorithm that could match your face with a face in a database. They were scraping millions, perhaps billions of photos from, on, from online, taking them without consent aggregating them into this massive database and then selling access to that database, to your images, to my images, to nearly every American's images, to the highest bidder. And if you have the ability to do that with impunity, to take our data and monetize it and weaponize it and give it to police, that is really fundamentally remaking how police powers work in the United States. And really, um, you know, it's something where I am very grateful to see the incredible advocacy and, you know, the litigation against them. They were previously sued in Illinois by the ACLU. I believe it was Mehente that was uh, driving the litigation uh, in uh, most recently. But this is a company that is clearly beyond the pale. And you, um, you, you at Stop are in favor of, of banning the scan entirely, fighting facial recognition. Should all facial recognition technology and companies be, be made illegal, Albert? Yeah. Yes, without question. Facial recognition is biased, it's broken, and when it does work, it's even even, even the use of the authorities by the police? 
especially the use of, of facial recognition by the police. And we have to look at the historical context here where police powers have been systematically targeted at communities of color for decades, for as long as we've had policing in the United States. And we can't ignore the fact that every time we grant police new powers and new discretion, they weaponize it against BIPOC communities, against immigrant communities, against the LGBTQ plus community. And so this is the pattern we are looking at. And just to pivot very quickly back to the um, one of the arguments around the capital insurrection, when we've expanded surveillance powers in the past to target right-wing extremists, and when, you know, such as in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City attack, where we passed the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, even though we pass these tools in the name of targeting right-wing extremists, they're then in practice targeted at communities of color. And with facial recognition, even if it wasn't systemically biased, even if it wasn't shown over and over and over again to be biased against uh, uh, people with darker complexions, particularly black women, even if that were fixed, you would still have the issue that it will be selectively used. And it is so powerful that when it functions perfectly, it is the perfect tool of authoritarianism. Uh, Albert, you you underline that in your argument against vaccine passports. Um, you suggest that uh, this will result in more and more discrimination against Black and Latinx Americans. Is that because they have less access to technology or because um, of the way in which this technology lends itself to racism and discrimination? I would say both, but with the vaccine passports, one of the driving factors there is we've seen the inequity in the vaccine rollout. In New York, you know, that, that's where I'm most familiar with the data. We've, no matter what measures we've taken to try to prioritize access to the hardest hit communities, it's often wealthier, whiter communities where people are getting vaccinated at higher rates. Meaning that if we deploy vaccine passports, you end up discriminating against uh, the same communities that have borne the brunt of this pandemic that have died at the highest rates, that have had the highest levels of infection. And it's just perpetuating the same uh, systemic discrimination. So that, that's one of the major drivers here. But you know, additionally, we have to look at the fact that one in five Americans don't have a smartphone. You know, and millions of those who do have smartphones have older devices that wouldn't even be capable of running a, a uh, vaccine passport. Yeah, and that, that stat is unimaginable for guys like An Andrew Yang and indeed for, for, for you and I, probably. We just, everyone we know have smartphones. Most of, of people we know have two or three of them. So it is hard to imagine. And, and there's this real ironic, uh, when, when it comes to um, identity and technology, I know that STOP has been involved in, in giving women in, in New York City the right to wear the hijab and, and not to have their faces exposed. You won that case, didn't you, when it came to the New York police? And perhaps there's more to the hijab than just um, religious symbolism, given the way in which uh, uh, people of color have been so discriminated against. Well, that case, I'm so proud uh, of that victory. So we uh, settled this case last year, along with our partners at Emory Chelly. And in that case, we were suing the NYPD because they forced Muslim women who wear the hijab, but also uh, New Yorkers who wear other religious head coverings to remove them for their mugshots. Now, 
you're allowed to have your religious head covering on when you get your driver's license, when you get your passport, but they were remo removing them for the mugshots simply because they wanted more data for their facial recognition database. Because here in New York, one of the leading drivers of the NYPD's facial recognition database is mugshots. And so we thought it was appalling and unconstitutional to have people stripped of their religious head coverings because of this desire to expand biometric surveillance. And the NYPD settled that, agreed to end that policy. And now we're continuing to fight for damages for the people who've been subjected to this policy in the past. Albert, as you know, there's a, there's a big debate at the moment about online on anonymity. There's one school, and I, I have to admit, I'm probably more in this school than the other that suggests that um, if people know who we are online, we behave better. We, we, mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't threaten people with death. We don't, we don't throw disgusting racist or, 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 or other insults at people we don't know. Uh, and on the other hand, there are people like Mike Masnick at Tech Dirt, very articulate and persistent defender of anonymity who says, and, and this is of course, particularly when it comes to social media, is it will actually cause more problems. In terms of this big debate between uh, the right to be anonymous online and our responsibility to perhaps be accountable for what we say, where do you stand and where does stop stand? Excusing that rather weird question, stop no. stand. No, not at all. Um, so this isn't something that STOP has a position on directly, but it's something that personally I, I strongly believe in, that it's really important to have uh, uh, anonymity protections because I'm thinking of, you know, maybe the LGBTQ kid, uh, the teenager who's living in a very religious household where they fear that they're going to be thrown out on the street. If they, if they are forced to come out of the closet. Uh, other people, you know, maybe survivors of uh, intimate partner violence who are worried about being tracked by their former abusers and still want to have a voice. There are so many people who face very real risks and very real risks of physical harm. Let, let's take the, that first example of the, of the mm -hmm. kid who has somehow challenged or undermined fundamental religious beliefs and from a traditional religious family, they still have to live their analog lives. So, so why would the analog life be different online? I just know so many people where this having an online community is what helped them survive. Having a place where they could be themselves online in safety and, and, and find other... Uh, uh, members of their community online who were also, you know, gay or lesbian or bi or trans or uh, gender nonconforming. And, and that is such an important part of internet subculture is having the safety to find people who are part of your community when you're living physically in a space where you can't be yourself. And, and so that that is something that I'm very worried about stripping away. And I think that there are other ways to fight the the type of coarsening of dialogue and the degrading of civil society that we see on social media without eliminating anonymity. Well, I invited Mike on the show. He's, as I said, very articulate and persistent, perhaps the leading critic of, um, of, 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 of this move to do away with anonymity. There was another piece of news uh, today uh, in, uh, that, that caught my eye in terms of our conversation, Albert. Um, an artist called Beeple sold a, 
a digital piece of art for $69 million at Christie's, uh, a digital piece of art that's called an NFT, which essentially gives it authenticity. It makes it a one and only version. I know, again, this probably doesn't cover what you focus on at Stop, but it does speak of our need for authenticity online. Uh, what does that piece of news tell you about the the longer term nature of technology and behavior online? I mean, I I have to admit, I just laughed so much when I read the news because it seemed to point to some of the biggest excesses of both the art market, of the cryptocurrency markets, of all these ways that people are trying to find to uh, invest in more and more exotic uh, investment vehicles in the hopes that that's going to be the next big thing. And, and you know, with NFTs, with non-fungible tokens, I just don't understand how those will you know really operate as a scalable investment class but also it, it's unclear to me how that is going to operate apart from the broadening reliance on copyright protections right mm. because if the nft is designed to provide a a sense of ownership of this work and it's a work that is otherwise free to share absent that claim of authenticity what I'm worried about is when people try to claim that they have some sort of copyright or some sort of trademark or uh, other sort of intellectual property right to suppress distribution of otherwise freely avail available works because of the underlying NFT investment. Yeah, I think that that is uh, th this NFT stuff does suggest that one of the early skirmishes in, a, in another great war over copyright Let's step back. You you laughed, uh, uh, Albert, at this 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 news of NFT being sold for sixty nine million dollars. But one thing that is certainly not funny is what's happening in China. Hmm. Uh, we had the German, uh, the very brave Germ German journalist Kai Strittmatter on the uh, on, on the show a year or two ago. He's written a, a very troubling book about China's surveillance state. Uh, couple of comments on China. You may not be an expert. Uh, and then uh, how much should this Chinese, this emerging or perhaps even finished uh, Chinese surveillance state, how much should it be a warning to us in the West? I definitely don't think the Chinese surveillance state is finished. I think what we continue to see is that as the technology gets cheaper and cheaper, China continues to make their surveillance apparatus even more prolific. And it's truly terrifying the level of control being exerted in China and again not uniformly being you know replicating the historical power imbalance and Muslims uh, in the same way as we seem to be using our technology against other minorities exactly when you look at the way that the Uyghur community has been targeted systematically subjected to ethnic cleansing uh you know imprisonment in, in mass uh, uh you know uh in mass camps, this is just uh, truly the things of nightmares. And and what I, I fear is that in looking at just the brazen nature of surveillance in China, we often lose sight of how close we are in some ways in the U.S. to replicating that dynamic. And when I think of you know 
undocumented children being ripped from their homes because of you know databases that ICE uses to collect data from utility companies. You know, this is something that Georgetown revealed last week. Like, this is a level of state surveillance that if you had told us about it five years ago, it, it would have seemed like the thing of science fiction. And now it's an everyday threat to people's lives. Yeah, it's terrifying. And, and all too often on this show, we criticize what's happening in America. And then we say, well, in Europe, they're doing it better. They have a stronger state. They have more uh, more safety against unemployment. They're more tolerant. They're more sensitive to racism, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to surveillance, it seems as if the Europeans in some ways are closer to the Chinese than the Americans. They're, I know that Amnesty came out with a story, uh, a, a warning earlier this week, uh, suggesting that in France, uh, new security laws are risking a dystopian surveillance state. How concerned are you, Albert, with what's happening um, in West European countries like France? And I know that the UK is also pretty bad in this area. Yeah, I mean, the when the French security law was first uh, uh, revealed last year, it was just truly... Um, it, it was so alarming. Uh, so the initial penalties, basically, people would have risked being in jail or, or ruinous fines simply for identifying uh, police officers or army uh, uh, officials who were at protests. It was something designed to chill the core guarantees of the free press, you know, guarantees that have existed in, you know, the, the French uh, legal system for, you know, more than 100 years. And, and so... I think that there are examples from Europe uh, uh, that definitely show um, countries going in the wrong direction. You know, the UK has often been a leader when it came to mass surveillance. I mean, there's more cameras in the UK. I don't know if it's still true, but I always remember the stat that there are more cameras in the UK than per meter or per person than any other place on earth. Yeah, this is London's famous ring of steel. The uh, you know the just flooding the city with CCTV, uh, you know, an investment of millions and millions of pounds, which didn't actually reduce the rate of crime. There's never actually been a study which showed that it was an effective anti-crime measure. But what you did see was more and more footage capturing violent acts, which led to this increased perception of threats uh, of criminality. But there are countries within Europe that are going to great lengths to protect privacy. You know, one of our model uh, examples of how to deploy uh, smart cities technology in a privacy protective way comes from Stockholm, Sweden, where they have probably the leading example of privacy protective uh, infrastructure um, that I'm aware of uh, right now anywhere. Um, you know, in Switzerland, you have very, very strong data privacy laws that, you know, really safeguard against a lot of the forms of governmental abuse that we've seen, uh, in, you know, in the United States. But at the same time, we've seen, you know, very uh, discriminatory laws passed in Switzerland targeting uh, the wearing of uh, ski masks that protests or uh, hijabs as well, or um, other religious head coverings. So no country is perfect, but there are definitely lessons that can be learned from nearly everywhere. Well, the um, the CEO, are you, are you the founder or the CEO or everything, um, Albert, of <laughs> uh, Top Surveillance Technology Oversight Project? A founder and executive director. Well, the guy who runs it, he may run it, but he doesn't watch us. He's against being watched. And he has, I think, given us very good warnings about how 
the cell phones that we all love so much, these smart devices are not only being used for us to uh, have fun and distribute our opinions about the world, but they're increasingly used to watch us. It's an important warning, one that I think is going to become more and more relevant. One of the nice things, of course, about books, physical analog books for our LitHub audience, is we read them and they don't read us. We don't have to worry about being watched by books, presumably as long as they're not digital books. Albert, I know you're in your study or your office in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, give us a book to end with that can help us make sense of these weird times of COVID and the beginnings of, of this surveillance capitalism that you are doing such a good job fighting against. Well, thank you for those kind words. And I, I definitely want to recommend uh, Race After Technology by Professor Ruha Benjamin at Princeton University. And it really, I think it emphasizes so many of the crucial themes to understanding that when we talk about privacy, it really is one size fits none, that it all of these systems impact us differently depending on our race, depending on our socioeconomic status, and depending on the ways that we're viewed as a threat by the state. Well, Albert Fox Khan, pleasure, honor, keep well, keep private, don't show your face too often, uh, except, of course, on our show. We will have you back again to talk about this big issue of individual freedom in our age of uh, surveillance capitalism. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again, Andrew.